Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's going on, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Be Shafe Daily. My name is Brendan Schaefer, coming to you live from Wrigleyville as the Cardinals, oh boy, oh boy, did they ever fall to the Cubbies on Friday afternoon, 10-5 to at Wrigley Field, and it's kind of a tale of two games where I should say the score, the final score, 10-5, to doesn't indicate how close the game was for a while, but then it doesn't quite indicate how big of a blowout it was by the end. The Cardinals tack on those three runs in the ninth inning. Pretty meaningless runs, but good to see Paul DeYoung get into one to the opposite field. He launches a two-run homer in the ninth as part of the Cardinals scoring there. But by and large, this one goes down as another one of those classic Wrigley Field games that Cardinals fans would like to forget. Because it just seems like something about this ballpark has the power over the Cardinals to where... You get into a game, you might keep it close for about five, six, seven innings. But sometimes when it's not your day, there comes a point in the game where it becomes abundantly clear that it's not your day. And today wasn't the Cardinals' day, and you might have been able to tell that from as early as the first inning. Because the Cardinals never did regain a lead or even a tied ball game following the events of the first inning. And really it was on both sides, top of the first, bottom of the first. Cardinals had some opportunities in the top of that inning, you could say, to get on the board early, to score first and take it right to Kyle Hendricks and the Chicago Cubs. Dylan Carlson starts things off nicely enough with the base hit to get the game going. And then the second batter of the game all goes to hell in a handbasket. I've never seen a play like this. Obviously, you remember the Steve Bartman play that happened in the 2003 NLCS. Wrigley Field, the dimensions, when you get into the sidewall situation, it's tricky. And I think even more so on the right side than the left side. Mike Schultz said after the game, and of course this obviously came into play with the ball off Paul Goldschmidt's bat, and we'll get into it here a little bit more, but it was interesting in Mike Schultz discussing his view of that play after the game. He said there was a moment pregame today where he was going through, as he does at every ballpark, he says, where you just take a look at the the field, the dimensions, the ballpark, make sure you're aware of anything that, that you need to potentially notice. And he just happened to take note of how little foul territory there is down the right field line before the sidewall comes into play. And boy, did that ever come into play in this ball game. Something about the Friday games at Wrigley Field, man, I don't know what it is, but it always seems like they're these crazy affairs that if if you weren't drinking beer during the game, you might feel like by the seventh or eighth inning that you have been. And I'll tell you what, I was plenty disoriented by two batters into the game because what happens is Paul Goldschmidt slices one down the right field line looks as though it's going to be close Jason Hayward seemed to be tracking the ball pretty well but you have to come up against that sidewall and it's a difficult play to potentially make but Hayward of course never gets the chance to catch the ball because a fan down the right field line reaches over and does it for him and the result of that play is that Paul Goldschmidt is out Now, fan interference, when they reach across the boundary in most situations, you'd say, okay, especially if the fielder is camped under the baseball, 
umpire and crew will get together. They'll make the call that it's an out, and nobody really would have a problem with that in most situations, whether it's a, on, a, on a home run ball that somebody reaches over. You know, that you would think that should be the call in that situation. If it's very clear and obvious that the fan interfered with the obvious catch, you would go ahead and make that call. The Jeffrey Meyer play stands out as one that happens for the Yankees, ends up getting a home run for them when they, they shouldn't have had one because fan reached over and caught the ball when the fielder was camped under it. That would be a situation where you could completely understand frustration on the part of the defense. You could understand the frustration of Moises Alou when the Steve Bartman game happened, thinking he was camped under that ball and, and going to make the catch. Now, if I'm not mistaken about that call, I believe there was foul territory in play that that ball wasn't going to be a fair ball. It was just likely going to be a catch and an important out for the Cubs in that NLCS game. Now, I don't know what kind of modifications have been made maybe to the stands at Wrigley, but that was, of course, on the left field side when it happened in 03. This situation today, Mike Schilt alluding to it, there is nowhere else for the ball to go but fair territory if it drops in. And so the fact that Jason Hayward was on the run going, I don't know if it was full speed, but at a pretty good clip heading toward that wall, that's a really difficult catch to make. Even if it is going to land in fair territory, which if it does, if it, if it hits chalk or whatever painted line is out there at Wrigley, I don't think it's chalk all the way to the wall. It's just painted and always down there. But even if the ball's going to hit that, that's still not a guaranteed play because Hayward has no room beyond that, maybe three or four inches, if that, between the line and the and where the wall begins. So it's not like he can he can stop his momentum after he leaves fair territory. If that ball's going to touch fair, which it very well may have done, that's a tough play for Jason Hayward. Regardless of where the ball was going to land, I don't know that you can say definitively he was going to make that catch. But I my view is that because it was ruled the way it was on the field, there's just no way. Like, MLB cares more about the status quo and not have, you know, they're going to be criticized for decisions. It happens all the time. But I think their preference would be criticize the call on the field unless it's definitive we're not going to do anything about it because then it, it's it's viewed as wishy-washy and for whatever reason MLB doesn't, unless it's like just blatantly clear and obvious, and sometimes it is, and they still get it wrong, but their tendency is just to not overturn these calls. And Mike Schultz said what he challenged was the notion that call on the field, Jason Hayward would have made the catch. That's what the umpires convened and ruled as it was described by the Cardinals manager after today's game. Let's go ahead and play that clip from Mike Schild. I asked him about it after the game. And here's what the Cardinals manager had to say about a pivotal play that occurred within the first inning. Well, it's hard for me to see it, first of all. Um, you, you know there's virtually no foul territory here. Um, so if a guy, And I also know that, um, you know, Hayward had to go a long way to, to make that play. And then my just general instinct was, you know, if a fan interfered with it, A, it's probably, you know, a fair ball. So you could have easily gone a double. And then you realize he had to go a long way and try to catch the ball on a run against a fence or a wall, rather. Um, degree of difficulty is fairly high. You know, it'd been different if he was camped under it, like, you know, Jeffrey Mayer, you know, ball years ago with Tarasco. But, um, you know, not the case. And so, you know, they gave the explanation on the field. Um, but they had to check on the field, too, which also tells me that I'm not completely certain. You know, they did their due diligence, they checked. Um, you know, it's not a crew chief review, it's a challenge. And at that point, I challenged, and I, and I made it really clear. 
I said, appreciate the fact that, you know, which should not matter, but we're, we are on the road. You know, we're got, teams are going to, you know, look to maybe do something. Probably would have done it anyway, Jeffrey Mayer. Um, but, but um, you know, I said, just appreciate the degree of the difficulty when you asked about, for the replay, because I'm challenging this, and he was not camped, and you can't assume a catch um, against a fence. Clearly, they looked at it the other way, and, and, and you know, guys do a great job. It's a really good crew. Um, and I don't know who the replay guys were in New York. They're all, you know, stand-up guys. So, um, but I took exception with that one. So there's a little bit from Mike Schild about why he had a problem with the call. I alluded to a lot of it already earlier in the podcast. But I, listen, I know this was a 10-5 game at the end of it, and it got to be 10-2 to at one point in time. But this was a huge pivotal moment in this game because the Cardinals potentially, if you do end up getting a double out of that for Goldschmidt, now you're second and third. One out in the inning, and you've got Arenado coming to the plate. That might be a different scenario. He might see some different pitches than the ones he sees to ultimately to the second baseman. Second baseman Horner doesn't catch it because, I mean, the wind was in play. That was maybe a Sunfield situation. Not exactly sure why he didn't get under that baseball, but ends up getting Dylan Carlson on a force out at second after missing the pop-up, and that kind of takes a lot of the wind out of the Cardinals' sails there in the top of the first inning. They ultimately don't score any runs, and you head to the bottom half of the inning where the Cubs do plenty of their damage. So while I understand, and I saw some of this on Twitter after the game, after I tweeted out the Mike Schilt quote, where people are kind of saying, yeah, but they gave up 10 runs. It's absolutely true, but I think you approach it differently the rest of the game and potentially have a different outcome. Now, offensively, I don't know how much you might get done against Kyle Hendricks, who ended up going six and a third innings. Pretty customary outing for him when he faces the Cardinals. Gives up a couple of runs. Cardinals did track on a little bit more in the third inning when they were able to kind of hone in on Hendricks and what they were looking to do against him, which is swing at good pitches in the strike zone and try to make something happen. And that was another question I asked Mike Schultz after the game. What is it about what they were able to do in that third inning where they scored a couple of runs and got four hits in total, I believe it was. Dylan Carlson got things started with a bunt hit with one out. Going against the shift, no problem with Dylan laying one down against the shift. I think that's a situation where you're against a guy like Hendricks that you haven't historically as a team had a lot of success with, and and not that Dylan Carlson is bringing all of that with him to the plate. I don't imagine that it's a, it's a called play for his decision to bunt against a shift. I'm sure when the shift is on and people are like, oh, you should bunt, I don't think that's something a third-base coach is going to tell you. That's If you're in that moment and you feel comfortable and confident in your ability to do it, you can do it. And Dylan in that moment thought, they're giving it to me, I'm going to take it, and I think that's a good way to approach it. And then Cardinals just basically took what Hendricks gave them the rest of the inning, hitting three more pretty solid singles into the outfield to account for a total of two runs, make it a three to two game. And the Cubs then tacked on one more run in the bottom of the fourth inning. So at that point it's four to two, but it stayed there for a while until the offensive outburst by the Cubs in the bottom of the seventh. And so that's what's frustrating about this Hayward play and then what we'll get into from the bottom of the first inning. The margin of this game was so much closer early on and then in the middle innings. And the difference with that play could have definitely turned the game in the Cardinals' favor if it goes the other way. It obviously doesn't go that way, and there's nothing the Cardinals can do about it, and they end up not scoring any runs in the first. It's just so crazy that on what was arguably a fair ball, and like I'll acknowledge the possibility that as the ball is tailing toward the foul side, it could have ended up hitting 
the sidewall there in foul territory because the, they did have a pretty straight-on angle. It was a short gift that Bally Sports Midwest posted, and that was kind of what I was looking at to where it's like, yeah, it might have been still fair by the time it hit the ground, but also it might have scraped the side of the wall kind of low down on the bottom couple of feet there. It just depends. But another angle of what could have happened is Hayward, his head's kind of turned to the side. He may not have actually caught the ball, but it might have hit him, his body in midair, and his body was in fair territory. So if it does that before it gets a chance to finally track foul at the end, even if it was going to do so, that's another way that Goldsmith ends up with extra bases and the Cardinals potentially runs in the top of the first. Doesn't happen that way. And then in the bottom half of the first is where the win really starts to come into play, in my opinion. I don't know how much that impacted the Hayward play there in dead right field. The wind was definitely blowing in from Lake Michigan from right to left. And then you see in the bottom of the first inning, there's a ball Tyler O'Neill doesn't quite get to. I think without that wind, he at least has an opportunity to dive for it. But the wind really did continue to push it toward the left field foul line. He plays it safe and keeps it in front of him. Runners at first and second. Another base hit then to left field. He's able to throw that one, a strike to Yadier Molina. So the runner from third unable to score. They get the bases loaded at that point, and the Cardinals were darn near out of this inning, a margin of inches once again in right field. This time, though, it was within the field of play. Shallow, soft line drive hit by Jock Peterson. Again, I think the wind kind of knocks it down even more. It didn't have a lot of thump on it. And so off the bat, with the way it was hit, you could hear the crowd cheer immediately. They come to life. They're roaring. They think they've just scored a couple of runs. Then Dylan Carlson... Running in, looks like he's going to have a beat on this ball. Gets it in his glove, even. But I think as it hits the ground, that's when it pops out. And ultimately, three runs score on the play because two outs. The runners were off with the contact, and they were able to easily score. after. I mean, Tommy Edmonds, the second baseman, he has to make his way all the way into right field in order to corral the baseball. And that's three runs right there. And the Cardinals never did get back into a tie game after that. So... The way those slim margins of the first inning go against them then ends up costing St. Louis in the game. As the game unfolds, the Cardinals certainly did have their opportunities. But then when you get to the seventh inning, it's that moment we talked about at Wrigley Field. It just seems to happen. The game catches up to you. And the way it caught up to the Cardinals today, you can understand when you look at what they had to do from a pitching standpoint they just didn't have the the number of relievers. I mean, when you're bringing that many pitchers into a game, it can be really difficult to expect all of them to be on their game on the same day. I'm going to count them up, try to do so quickly. Eight pitchers in total end up pitching for the Cardinals today. Luis Garcia got his first crack at things. We got to talk to him a little bit on the field before the game on Friday. Newest Cardinals signing. Some news that we do need to touch on. Johan Oviedo gets option to Memphis. Not a big deal. He'll probably be back in the Cardinals rotation on the other side of the All-Star break. But by doing this move, the Cardinals will actually allow him to pitch through the break. I believe Tuesday he's going to start for Memphis, be able to sharpen up a little bit there, maybe against a different set of competition and circumstances. Oviedo will be able to turn things around, has definitely struggled of late, still looking for that first big league win. And so hopefully whatever he's able to do at AAA will allow him to right the ship a little bit more. He's had some effective outings, but then he's had some others where it seems like he's regressed a little bit. And so I have no issue with the Cardinals sending him to Memphis. It's kind of a bummer for a player because if you're a guy who spent the majority of the season to this point with the big league club, 
you get to the all-star break and you think, well, I'm not an all-star, so at least I get to kind of take a break and, and recharge. He won't be given that opportunity, but I think, honestly, it can be a good thing for Oviedo if he gets down there and is able to, to work on some things in the one start he'll make during the Major League All-Star break because AAA Memphis will continue to play baseball games over the course of the next week. But Garcia, he's the guy they signed, right-hander who had been with the Yankees in their minor league system, actually performed as their closer at AAA for much of the season, but he had a July 1st opt-out if they didn't call him up. It was exercised, and then he was just waiting to see where he'd go next. Ends up landing with the Cardinals, has some serious heat. He got up to 98 miles per hour today, and the reason I know that is because the pitch that did go for 98.2 hit Wilson Contreras in the helmet. So that was not a good situation when you have on the field Mike Schilt talking to us reporters here in Chicago before the game saying, yeah, he's a strike thrower and that's something that we need on our staff. Same thing with Wade LeBlanc, same thing with Justin Miller bringing in these guys that can hopefully help fix the situation. And for the Cardinals, that situation has been league leaders, or you could say bottom of the league, with regard to walks and hit batters because they're the highest in both categories, and that's not what you want if you're talking about it from a pitching perspective. And so today, Cardinals don't do themselves any favors in that regard. They actually hit three batters, one of which was Garcia there in that fourth inning. Seven walks, so ten free passes essentially for Cardinals pitching on Friday. Not what you want to see. It is a continuation of a trend that has been a problem for this team throughout the course of the season. And as I mentioned You get that many relievers into a game. Wade LeBlanc just going three innings, 65 pitches. Probably could have gone a little bit more uh, and really wasn't pitching all too terribly. Like I said, if he does get out of that first inning with the Dylan Carlson play just coming up a little bit differently, he's got a scoreless game going. Had a little bit of trouble in the second, was able to get out of that as well. Ends up going three innings, but the Cardinals, you know, with the all-star breakup coming, they figure they can be pretty aggressive with the pitching staff, be aggressive with deploying relievers when they feel they need to do so and that also meant the chance to go with pinch hitters and so Lars Newtbar who's back with the team as well uh, got a pinch hit appearance there in the fourth didn't amount to anything and then you were into the bullpen so not a great outing from Luis Garcia ends up giving up a run did hit that batter gave up a couple of hits in the frame Andrew Miller got his inning did his job Justin Miller faced a batter got a strikeout ends up getting through the remainder of an inning. It was Andrew Miller that had to come in for Luis Garcia. And then so they were doing, it's all about matchups, right? You're trying to get through the game the best you can with matchups. Sometimes that means creative deployment of relievers. So not a bad day all in all for the Millers. Helsley looked pretty good with an inning of work, two strikeouts for him. But you get deeper into the bullpen. Now you're reliant upon, okay, you've got to have good Henesis Cabrera if you're going to stay in this game. They didn't get good Henesis Cabrera today, and they certainly did not get good Junior Fernandez. Comes into the game with the bases loaded. Still an opportunity to keep things relatively close. He faces Chris Bryant. First pitch he throws. And again, the wind was still making it difficult on balls trying to leave the yard to left field at this point in the game. But off the bat, you go, yep, that's trouble from Bryant. He gets it into the left center field gap. Bader couldn't get to it. O'Neill couldn't get to it. And there's a photo AP, AP photo took that I, I wasn't cruel enough to use it as the cover photo for my story for KMOV. I, I did consider it, but then I found a photo that really described and captured the Hayward play pretty well, and, and so I went with that one instead. But there's a there's an image out there where Bader and O'Neill both have hands on the ivy looking over their right shoulders like, ah, crap, here we go. Three-run double for Chris Bryant, and then Patrick Wisdom, what I like to call the cherry on top of the exclamation point, 
of the game. He does leave the yard to left field. I think they said 384 on the footage for the home run off Wisdom's bat, but it's pretty rare. Every fly ball, it seemed like, that went out to this area seemed like it was gone off the bat, and I kind of can understand how over the years Cubs fans have gotten that, or I should say, reputation for seeing a fly ball, starting to cheer, and then it dies at the warning track. In fairness, sometimes off the bat, those balls should be gone. But with the wind and play the way it was today blowing in, it ends up staying in the yard. I think there was one off Javi Baez's bat. There was a couple balls that Bader ends up catching on the track that I'm thinking, I figured that ball was going to at least get to the ivy, and it doesn't do so in either case. But Patrick Wisdom, if there's such a thing as a no-doubter with the wind blowing in, you know you've done your job. And so... I saw that ball off the bat, and I said, okay, that one's got to be gone. And then as it's tracking, I'm thinking, well, it should be gone, right? But ends up getting plenty of it. The former Cardinal does it to the Cardinals. Junior Fernandez, not his day at the yard. Ends up giving up some of Genesis Cabrera's earned runs. Really, all three of them earned by Cabrera. He didn't actually have to be on the field when they were scored. But when you walk a couple of guys like Cabrera did, you don't really have the opportunity to complain uh, you got to throw strikes, and that's really been the story of the, the, the trouble for the Cardinals pitching staff this season. They haven't been able to do it at a high enough rate, and then when they did throw strikes, it was to Chris Bryant who pummeled it, only saw one pitch, and then they pinch ran for him. He's been a little bit dinged up, but was certainly healthy enough to take the at-bat today and to do something with it, potentially up in his trade value because the Cubs have been rumored as being a team that could be selling at the trade deadline. They're ahead of the Cardinals in the standings, Natural to wonder whether the Cardinals might do the same. But I would argue the Cardinals don't have a lot of pieces that actually make sense from a seller's perspective. Yes, you could obviously trade Adam Wainwright. You could trade Yadier Molina. I don't think that is what the Cardinals need to be doing down the stretch here. You're talking about guys on expiring contracts. You're usually, unless it's like a a star caliber name like Max Scherzer, a guy who's still performing in the prime of his career. We've talked about what he could bring potentially at the deadline if the Nationals were to go that direction. They've since been playing a lot better baseball, though Scherzer did give up a grand slam to a relief pitcher yesterday, and I just I love Max Scherzer, but I find that hilarious. I wish the camera would have just stayed on him after the, the swing by the reliever for the Padres because I had I have to imagine his hair was on fire. Like, of all the people in Major League Baseball that could give up a homer to a reliever, that's kind of funny. Gotta love Mad Max, gotta love him for the Mizzou connection, but I, I just would have loved to have seen his reaction, and I haven't seen a video that showed it because they just cut to showing the replay of the swing, which is pretty understandable on that front. But kind of wrapping up on the conversation about Cardinals with trade value, I don't know that you want to trade anybody that you think can help you in 2022. Obviously, with Wayno and Molina, they're not under contract for that season. So if you're trading either of those guys, first of all, you're relenting on the legacy of both of them, either of them as career Cardinals. I know that I feel like they both have to agree to the trade, like whether that's true through contractually or not, I, I would think it would be it for Molina. I don't know if it's true for Wainwright. I, I just frankly don't know. It shouldn't matter though. Like the Cardinals would not trade either of those guys against their will. I know they've both got enough veteran status. I think that's the way it works. If you've been around for so long, you, you get that opportunity. And so I don't think either of them are going anywhere, nor should they. Like even if this ends up being a losing season for the Cardinals, it could be both of their last years let it finish with the Cardinals and at least have that to look forward to because that's not going to, like, whatever you're going to get for either of them is not going to be significant enough to make it worth giving up 
on that the, the legacy argument of they played their whole career with the Cardinals. Like, how bad would that look if either of them were traded and do retire after the year? It's like, yep, they spent their whole career with the Cardinals. Well, except for that last two months. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I, I would just be totally stunned if it did, unless they like, if it was like abundantly clear in a couple of weeks, like the Cardinals lose their next 12 games. It's like, oh yeah, this team isn't going anywhere. And there's a request and that request is honored by the Cardinals. I would think it would have to be a deal where they'd like Yachty and Wayno would go to the same place. I could see that maybe, but I, it would just, I just would be sincerely surprised if anything like that would happen. You look elsewhere on the roster I, I don't. I just don't think it makes sense to to tear anything down. There's not a lot of pieces on, on guys that are have years remaining on their contracts that I don't look at and say, no, I think the Cardinals should expect to be contenders next year, even if they aren't this year. And you'd like to have player X, Y, or Z around for that season. So I've seen some dream, some dreams, and and some uh, some trade polls and stuff like that going up on Twitter. I'm not really putting any up right now because I don't see anything that even makes a remote bit of sense for the Cardinals necessarily. You can't exactly be a buyer. It's a bad situation because they've kind of waited too long. Like, I know that we've talked about Mosaic discussing the fact that it's hard to make trades when, when you're behind the eight ball the way the Cardinals have been. But the Brewers have made trades. Like, they've made two trades in the last month or six weeks or whatever it's been that they believe could help their organization. And the Brewers are right now in first place in the Central. So I, I do think it, you know, it's kind of difficult to say, well, we can't make trades. We're not close enough to first place, and it's not worth mortgaging the future for the present. When there was a time in the season where I think the Cardinals could have acted creatively toward fi- fixing their pitching staff, maybe that ends up injecting some more life into your offense, and, and you can see things roll from there a little bit more favorably. Cardinals didn't do that, and now they're kind of where they are. You just have to figure out a way to win some games or – you're probably going to have the team that you have, and you could be in for an August and September. That isn't particularly interesting. Hopefully that's not what happens with the Cardinals, but right now, I mean, the reality is they're in fourth place, and even after playing a little bit better over the series against the Giants, able to take two out of three from them, it's kind of too little, too late, too far, too between. You had to beat up on those bad teams. You didn't, and now unless you beat up on some some better opponents, and I get it, the Cardinals, or, pardon me, the Cubs have really been struggling coming into this series. They gave up three home runs to Brad Miller last night, for goodness sake, but, you know, you play who you play now, and it's the, the Cubs, and then it's the Giants again, and the Cubs after the All-Star break. You're just going to have to win some more of these games. Cardinals did not win today. There are a lot of reasons for it, but they are where they are at this point in time, and we'll have to see what they're able to do over the next couple of days and then how they potentially regroup during the All-Star break. I know you're going to get Miles Michaelis potentially back in August. Jack Flaherty is the bigger name that, A, I think he's more likely to uh, be healthy Jack Flaherty again when he returns because in Miles' case, whenever he comes back, if he comes back, I don't know what level of expectation you can have for him given the number of different kinds of injuries he's had over the last couple of years. With Jack, you know it's the oblique. Hopefully he's able to to recover from it and return as himself. But, you know, is that going to be enough to be able to push the Cardinals back into contention? Remains to be seen. What I do know is the offense has to do a little bit more. I know they scored five runs today, but you scored two over the first eight innings. You scored two runs as of the point where this game, for all intents and purposes, ended. And so... You can't, I mean, that's not good enough. You can't tack on three in the ninth and say, well, we fought and it's fine. That's not, I don't buy that. I don't think a lot of Cardinals fans buy that. And I get, you know, it does show that the team isn't giving up on the game. I don't think that's what anybody is suggesting that they're doing. It's it's that when crunch time is on, when the opponent is throwing their high caliber arms because 
They believe the game is on the line. Those are the situations in which the Cardinals are not getting it done. Like the guy that they scored three runs off of has a 9.82 ERA on the season. Didn't get anything done against Chafin, who's got a 23-inning scoreless streak. Nothing done against Winkler. Ryan Tepera has been a really good reliever. So they're, they're top dogs. And then Kyle Hendricks, of course, beat the Cardinals today because, you know, that's what he does. But the Cardinals weren't able to do much offensively against those guys. And so while I do say, yeah, give them some credit for what they did in the ninth, it, it, it pales in comparison to the reality that this offense has got to get things figured out at a level higher than the one they've been performing at of late. I'm going to wrap things up here, though, for this edition of B-Shape Daily. I appreciate you guys immensely for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. I know it wasn't the Cardinals game that you were hoping to see, but I have made the trip up here to Wrigley Field and finding ways to squeeze in a little podcast action here before hopefully going to find some dinner. Cardinals will be back at it on Saturday. It'll be a night game against the Cubs at Wrigley Field, which I guess that's fine. I guess that gives me a night to kind of uh, explore and not have to wake up super-duper early in the morning, but used to used to having the day games at Wrigley Field. It was a great experience today. This is the first game I've covered as a media member at Wrigley, so great experience. Going to have another one tomorrow, 6.15 start time as far as central time is concerned. Kwon Young Kim against Zach Davies, and uh, we'll end up seeing what the Cardinals are able to get, do against the, the right-hander. Came over from the Padres in the U Darvish deal and has done a decent job for the Cubs this year. 5-5, five and five, 4.28 ERA. Kwon Young Kim, honestly, as of late, been the Cardinals' second-best starter. Um, and and that's I guess that's not too much of a high bar to clear, considering the fact that Wade LeBlanc, technically, is your number three starter at this point because Carlos Martinez, something else that we should talk about. I meant to mention it earlier in the podcast, but I, I forgot. He's on the 60-day injured list now. That was a move corresponding with the deal they did to bring in Luis Garcia. They had to they had to figure out somebody to either move off the 40-man in a DFA situation or given the severity that it appears for Carlos Martinez's thumb situation, they decided they could move him to the 60-day, which would mean he could not return until early September if he returns at all. Carlos Martinez is still determining, according to Mike Schilt, we should get uh, some more understanding on that in the next coming days. Uh, trying to figure out what what direction they're going to go. That could mean a potential surgical repair. That could mean a variety of things for Carlos Martinez. But again, wouldn't be shocked if he's if he's thrown his last pitch as a Cardinal because his contract does come up at the end of the season. So see what ends up happening there. And we'll talk to you guys tomorrow if I can. It might be early Sunday morning, potentially. It's going to be a little tricky, actually. I'm not going to commit to anything for post-Saturday's game. But if we end up doing two podcasts at once, uh, you'll probably hear from me Sunday night. Uh, it's just going to depend on the timing of everything and how long the game goes. I mean, these Wrigley games seem to go on forever, and you think sometimes with Kyle Hendricks pitching, like if it was a Kyle Hendricks Kwon Young Kim matchup, probably two hours and twenty minutes because uh, oftentimes it seems like Kyle Hendricks doesn't have to throw very many pitches to get the Cardinals out, and we know that Kim likes to work pretty quickly. So KK on the mound tomorrow. Fingers crossed that with the night game, we'll end up not being at the ballpark too terribly late. But you guys don't care about that. You care about wins, and we'll see if the Cardinals can get you one tomorrow. Appreciate you guys. As always, make sure to subscribe to B-Shape Daily if you haven't done so already. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to do that. Love to have you on board. Love your feedback. Shoot me a DM on Twitter at B-Shaper12. I'll try to get to them. I've gotten quite a few today that I just haven't been able to get to yet, but I'll, I'll run through them all later on this evening. Keep them coming. Keep listening. Appreciate you guys, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace!